0: I'm Chris, for those who don't know me. I'm one of the, uh, one of the elders here at Freedom Church. Uh, it's a privilege to be speaking this morning again on our, our series on the book of Mark. Uh, and we're just gonna crack straight on this one. There's quite a lot to get through. We're looking at <coughs> the chapter, chapter three. Verses 20 to 35. We're actually taking a jump back. You might have noticed, uh, Matt jumped into chapter 4 last week. Originally we were the other way around on the preaching roads and I really wanted to speak on this passage. He really wanted to speak on that passage. So we just swapped them around. So you have to deal with a bit of time travel this week, I'm afraid. We're just going backwards a week. But shall we turn together? If you've got your Bible with you, I'm going to put the words up on the screen. I think I'd love it just to read the scriptures out together. If we all just, uh, in one voice read the, read the words out that are on the screen. It's Mark 3, verse 20, uh, verses 20 to 35. Shall we read together? Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house "...without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin." He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, sister and mother. Great. So I think Jesus in this passage is dealing with something which is an issue for all of us in some way or another. And that is the reaction of people to the Lordship of Jesus from those who are important to us. Particularly our own family, our own friends, and those who might be in positions of authority or positions that particularly affect our lives. Maybe our boss or our work colleague or our friends as well as our family. And I've, I've given a name to these, these people we're going to call them UPIs, unbelieving people of importance, not to be confused with the UTI, which is something quite different, uh, and we're not talking about that this morning. So if you ever hear me referring to UPI this morning, I'm talking about people in our lives who are so important to us for one reason or another, but who don't share our belief in Jesus. And what I want to get at this morning is that Jesus had these people in his life too. So however hard you're finding it to to be a Christian in that context with family members with best friends with bosses and work colleagues whoever it is in your life who doesn't believe and doesn't follow what you believe and it just it really gets to you. Jesus had that too and I really I think you've got some really important stuff to share this morning about how we cope with that and what we can do about it. So I hope this talk today will be some encouragement um, particularly if you're in that situation. I know there are people in the church who for example are married to people who don't believe in Jesus or at least don't put their faith and trust in him. And I know that is a really difficult walk and I really want to bring some encouragement this morning around that. I personally have been quite fortunate, well very very fortunate and blessed because I come from a family, a long line of belief. Um, So my father is an Anglican vicar, his father is an Anglican vicar, two of my aunties are Anglican vicars, my one of my uncles is an Anglican vicar and and all of my family, my immediate family are are Christians and are, are walking with God. So to some extent, I've not had to go through that difficult experience of the people most close to me being uh, in that, in that boat. But I've got a lot of my closest friends, a lot of my, my closest non-Christian friends who just, they're just not interested. They, they range from, from atheist, out and out atheist to agnostic to believe in God, but just don't care. And, and they look at me and they, they think I'm, Hotty, frankly and they're like why why are you doing what you do why do you believe what you believe and it's nice for you but I just I just don't see it so I you know whilst my family are not in that position I do I do know what it feels like to know that the people you love so much the people you you love spending time with so much just don't don't get it and the encouragement as I say is that is that Jesus knows this pain and actually in this passage he deals with it really incredibly well and the passage is kind of split into three chunks uh, the first uh, few verses, verses twenty to twenty-two, we see Jesus. We see comments about Jesus' family, and then there's a break in the middle where actually we see Jesus dealing with some other UPIs, people of importance who don't believe. And that's the teachers of the law, who obviously have a huge bearing on Jesus' life, as we come to find out. And then at the end of the passage, we return back to Jesus' family. Uh, so there's kind of three chunks of, of the passage as we go through this morning. And I think from this passage we can get three things: three things that we see about how Jesus deals with unbelief around him. Three, three things about how Jesus deals with those people who don't, who are important to him, but who don't share uh, the belief in God. Number one, he never dishonours his family. Number two, he doesn't try to appease anyone. And number three, he also points to a new family. And we're going to go through those three points this morning. So the first one, he doesn't dishonour his family. Do you know, Jesus' family upbringing, you have to say, is somewhat unique. He is the son of God and he's born of a human mother, but via a miraculous conception with an earthly father who was somewhat dumbfounded by the whole thing. Jesus from day one, before day one, knew who he was. And actually Joseph and Mary's parents should have known too, because God sent an angel, Gabriel, to them before Jesus' birth and tells them in great detail, this is what's going to happen, you're going to give birth. To a son, you're going to call him Jesus, and he's going to be my king. And yet it seems in this passage that there's some serious lack of understanding going on amongst Jesus' earthly family. Possibly because for 30 years, Jesus has led a fairly unremarkable family life. In fact, we only get one story in the scriptures about Jesus' life between the age of about a week old and about 30. And that's the story of where he goes to the temple during the Passover uh, and his family come home and realise they've left him behind, and they go and find him back in the temple, and he's and they, and they said, where have you been? you meant to be with us. He's like, look, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That was Jesus around the age of 12. That's the only story we get of his upbringing. But we know they lived a perfect, sinless life. And can you imagine how annoying that would be for his brothers and sisters? <laughs> to have this sibling who is just perfect. To be the one who just gets everything right, who doesn't mess anything up, who doesn't annoy anyone, is always super happy, never gets frustrated. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? We, we still have sibling rivalry in my house, well, my, my family in Liverpool. In fact, we had a, a WhatsApp conversation that got a bit out of hand the other day because um, it was revealed that my father, as his pin number on his credit card, had my year of birth uh, and not one of the other kids. And they were like, well, he must be the favourite. He's changed his pin number, by the way, so don't go trying to work out my year of birth. But, <laughs> But sibling rivalry, guys. It, you know, can you imagine having this perfect brother who never does anything wrong? After a while, I mean, it would be great to live with him, wouldn't it? But after a while, you're like, "Oh, he's so flipping annoying, Mister Perfect over there." But now we're, he's 30 years old, and we've seen in these first few chapters of Mark, Jesus has started to step out and minister, and he's going public, and he's he's doing incredible things. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching incredible messages uh, in the in the area. And he's showing God's love and his words and his actions in whole new ways. People, ways that people have never seen before. And he's gaining a reputation and he's drawing huge crowds of people. we would looked the other week at the crowds he was drawing. And in this chapter, he actually returns to his hometown. And we see in, in these verses 20-21 that there's such a crowd around him, such a fervor around him that he can't even sit down to eat a meal with his disciples. It says there, he entered the house and a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And his family suddenly grow very, very concerned. Who does he think he is? What is he playing at, saying and doing all of these things? He's going to get himself in trouble. In fact, he's going to give this family a bad name. And we see there in verse 21, when they heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Maybe they're a bit concerned for him too. I mean, he, he can't actually sit down to eat a meal in peace. Maybe they just want to see him given a bit of space. Guys, just leave him alone. This is our this is our brother. This is our son. He, he needs to eat. Just just clear off. You don't want all this attention on Jesus. And you know, I love that verse 21. I don't know if you see that there. They went to take charge of him. As if anyone can take charge of Jesus, the Son of God, the God eternal, who's at one day, every knee is going to bow at his name. Every tongue is going to f- confess, He is the king of all kings, the God who flung stars into space. And his brothers and his parents say, well, we need to go and take charge of this, Jesus. It's, it's ridiculous. But you know, it shows the level to which he's humbled himself. We called this series Down to Earth Jesus for a reason. Jesus humbled himself. He had all that power. He had all that status, all that majesty in heaven. And yet he came to earth and allowed himself to walk the streets and to be with people just like this and to be crowded out, get to get all that attention and to be okay with it. And yet his family just cannot deal with it. You know, for his family, the fear of man overtakes faith in God. Even though they know, even though especially Joseph and Mary, they know Jesus' backstory. They know who he's supposed to be. And yet they're suddenly fearful that he's, it's going too far. This is getting out of, out of hand. He's doing stuff that is too crazy and people are getting, uh, are getting out of hand with it. And maybe you recognize that fear in your own family or with your own other UPIs. Maybe some people have looked at you and said, I don't like this Christianity thing that they're getting into. I think it, I think it's a bit dangerous. They're, they're going on to this church and everyone's really happy and smiley and it's a bit weird. And like they seem really peaceful and calm, and they're they're like praying to God, and they they going to all these meetings and they're and they're doing stuff, and it's they're different from how they used to be. I don't like it. I feel like I don't know them anymore. I don't know if they've gone to a cult or something. It's it's a bit weird. I don't get it. Maybe you've had that. Maybe you've had those conversations with your family, and they said, "Look, I, I'm worried for you, Karen. Has. <laughs> uh, I'm worried for you. I don't, I'm not sure what you're getting into here." It's difficult, isn't it? And the fear is that when you find faith and you find God you're not going to be who you were anymore. And that takes people out of their comfort zone. You're going to be different. Actually, for the first time in your life, you're going to love someone more than you might love your family, more than you might love these other people in your life. You're going to change your priorities. You're going to do things differently. And people get uncomfortable with it. And the fear is that you're going to change too much. And you know, this whole scene is set for a horrifically awkward moment within Jesus and his family it's all set for a big bust-up. It's all set for a family row, an embarrassing scene where Jesus has to stand up and admonish his family and say, no, you've got it wrong, you don't know who I am. You don't know what you're doing. Don't stop me. Except that's not what we get. We don't get this. We don't get Jesus yelling at his family and saying, leave me alone. We don't get him embarrassing them publicly. We don't get him saying, look, you've got this so wrong, you're being so silly. What we get is Jesus just taking it in his stride, He doesn't cause a row or a scene. He carries on doing what he's doing and he gently teaches and he gently speaks to people. At the end of the passage, where he's told, look, your brothers and your mother are outside. They're waiting for you. He doesn't embarrass them. He just shifts the focus. And he says, actually, you know, I've got a different, I've got more than just my earthly family. I've got another mother and brothers and sisters. He doesn't tell them to go away. He doesn't tell them that they're wrong. He simply points out that now, his family is wider. His family is bigger. There's a whole new context, a whole new shape and dynamic to his family. And he avoids that, 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 that potentially embarrassing family scene. He doesn't dishonor his family. I think that's really important as we, you know, as we look at our own families and our own UPIs. Actually, the temptation is to get into arguments. The temptation is to tell them that they're wrong and, and, and it can cause arguments. Actually, I don't think Jesus takes that model. I think Jesus honors his family. I think he honors them and he loves them and he gently carries on doing what he's doing and we'll look at that more in a minute. But there's there's no sense of dishonor. There's no sense of Jesus upsetting his family or or, or or calling them out. The second thing is this: that he doesn't, whilst he doesn't dishonor his family and he doesn't dishonor the people around him who don't believe, he also doesn't appease them. He doesn't bow to them. He doesn't give in to what they what they're thinking. You know, in, in the 19th century, there was a woman who was born to wealthy parents and these parents had very, very clear expectations of of what her life would be like. She was born in 1820 and their expectation for this woman was that she would marry a rich, influential man and she'd pop a load of kids out and she'd keep the family line going and that was going to be her life. That was what she was going to do to honour the family and to, to live the life that they, they had designed for her. Only... That was not the life that this woman wanted, in fact, far from it, at age seventeen, this lady heard what was the several of the first of several calls from God actually that he wanted her to live a life of service to others and specifically in the field of medicine and Over several years, this lady immersed herself in study and eventually announced to her family, "I am going into nursing," and they were furious because at that time nurses they were not held with a great deal of honour in society. In fact, they were seen as uneducated, unskilled and even promiscuous at times. This was not the realm that they wanted their daughter and their sister and, uh, to go into. This was dishonourable. This was not where someone from a rich, wealthy family should be going. They co- she caused further anger when she ended a nine-year courtship with an influential politician. and said, no, I, I don't want to marry you, actually. I want to focus on this calling. I want to focus on my career as a nurse and what God has called me to do. In 1859, she wrote a book which redefined the field of nursing and which became the cornerstone of nursing education in her own school of nursing and which provided a whole wealth of of senior nurses for the future. And the career of this lady improved hospital sanitary conditions, nursing practices and patients, and patient care in hospitals around the world, potentially saving millions of lives. Anyone know who I'm talking about? It's Florence Nightingale. You know, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened if Florence Nightingale had listened to the family and the UPIs around her and told, who were telling her how they wanted her to live her life. She didn't dishonor them. She didn't tell them where to go. But she did tell them, look, I know I've been called to this and the call of God on my life is what I want to follow and that's over and above everything else. And thank goodness she did because she had an incredible impact on the world. You know, for her, obedience to God was more important than the will of her family and the authority figures around her. And in this, in this passage here, verses 22 to 30, the second chunk of the passage, we see Jesus in conversation with another group of important people, religious scholars, in fact teachers of the law, who've come all the way from Jerusalem to his hometown to check out what's going on. They've heard the reports, they've heard the concerns of people, and they want to see this guy up close. What is he doing? What is he talking about? What is going on? We've heard that he's casting out demons. We've heard that he's healing people. This sounds dangerous to us. And these guys have got lots to lose, because these are people whose lifestyle and status in society is dependent on their roles. Of te- as teachers of the law. So this guy's going around and proclaiming actually freedom from the law, freedom from wrath, freedom from rules and regulations, but life abundance and abundance and the life of worship to God. This has an impact on them because if this catches on, what's, the, what's going to be the need for teachers of the law anymore? They've got a problem. Now actually, what we've seen Jesus doing in, in these passages is that he's casting out demons and actually casting out demons in itself was not new at that time. People in Jewish in Jewish culture, they, they, they did practice the casting out of demons, but there's something different about Jesus because every single time he attempted it, he succeeded. There was never a time when Jesus told a demon to flee and the demon stayed. And this is caught like wildfire. All of a sudden people say, hang on. This is different from what we've seen before. We've seen people trying to cast out demons and occasionally it works, but suddenly this guy, every single time, and even demons that we've seen fail to go before, they're fleeing now because of this man. And there's, the, there's a problem for these teachers of the law because they can't simply deny that what's happening. They can't claim that it's fake. It is happening right in front of their eyes. They can't call Jesus a liar. They can't say he's making it up. They're seeing it happen. So they do the only other thing they can do. They say he's evil. They say that he's in league with the devil. That he's drawing on the power of Beelzebub, a a powerful evil demon, or possibly even Satan himself. And instead of, instead of seeing the good that Jesus is doing and the power he's got from the Spirit, they turn to cynical criticism of the power of God. What an accusation for Jesus to face. And how do you react When you face these accusations yourself in your life, when people say to you, oh, you just, all this Holy Spirit stuff, all this, all this stuff you're getting into with church, it's, it's weird, it's wrong, it's, it's a cult, it's, it's evil, it's not right. How do you respond to that criticism? How did Jesus respond? I know the temptation might be to water it down, to bend a little bit, to try and, as I say here, to try and appease the people in your life to try and calm their fears and say, "Look, no, it's okay. It's not that bad. I don't really believe that stuff. Really, you don't need to worry about that. That's that's for other people. Um, you know, may, and I know Jesus says some shocking things, but you know, I don't really believe that. Actually, I believe this. You don't need to worry about me. You know, we don't want to look too weird or too extreme or too old-fashioned. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to. We don't want to see our family relationships broken because of what we now believe. Well, that is not Jesus's way. Unsurprisingly, he is." Utterly confident of who he is and in the power that he has. And at no point does he bow to the criticism. And at no point does he try to win over these people who are criticising him by trying to compromise with them. Or trying to make them happy and say what they want to hear. He tells them the truth. In fact, he does three things. The first thing he does is to expose the flaw in their argument. The second thing he does is to give them good news. And then the third thing is to give them a stern and honest Warning. So the first thing, exposing the flaw in the argument. Jesus says, how on earth, you're telling me that I'm using the power of the devil to drive out demons. How on earth does that work? That's like fighting fire with fire. How, why would the devil attack himself? If he's got power in someone's life, why would he drive that power out himself? It doesn't work. It's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing to say. He talks about, you know, a house, Divided against itself cannot stand. A family divided against itself cannot stand. It doesn't work if if the same family is attacking itself. But how can how can I possibly be doing this in the power of the devil? When I'm driving out the devil, and then he uses this imagery of a strong man. He says, "No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying you up." And I'm reminded this is I've waited five years for an excuse to preach about Duncan Ferguson, my uh, my childhood hero, and you might think. Your hero is a guy who throttled someone on a on a football pitch. Duncan Ferguson when I was growing up he played for Everton. He now works for Everton, Ryan knows him, I think. He was a a kind of figure of power and hope for Everton in a time when we were even worse than we are now. And but he was yeah, you know, He was he was a, a, a sort of bustling centre forward. He was an incredible header of the ball, but he was also, frankly, a thug. If I'm being absolutely honest, uh, he was a little bit unhinged. <laughs> Sometimes on a football pitch, he would just lose it. Um, he headbutted someone, ended up in jail. He punched people. He throttled this guy after he got a red card. Yeah, it, not really a healthy picture to, to as a hero figure. But anyway, we'll move on. I've, I've, I've repented of that. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a story, a famous story, where two people, two men, decided to break into Duncan Ferguson's house. Whether they knew it was Duncan Ferguson's house when they broke in, I do not know. Anyway, they found themselves in Duncan Ferguson's house, presumably ready to help themselves to a load of expensive gear that his lifestyle had afforded him. They were met by Duncan Ferguson. And despite being hit over the head with a baseball bat, Duncan Ferguson managed to beat one of them up, sit on him and call the police and wait until they came. And this guy ended up in quite uh, a lot of pain. Uh, The other one genuinely fled in terror. The mistake these two guys made is that they entered a the strong man's house without tying him up first. If Maybe if they'd managed to tie Duncan Ferguson up, they might have had a chance. But they didn't. And he was too powerful. And Jesus here, when he talks about that image, you can't enter a strong man's house without tying him up first. If you, were, if, if, if you go in with the same power as someone, you're not going to be able to succeed. They're going to overpower you. They're going to they're match you at least or beat you. Jesus has to be going in with a stronger power than the power of the devil. There's no way he can do what he's doing. There's no way he can cast out demons unless he is stronger than the demons. He can't be the same power as the demons. He must be something better and bigger. Someone who's able to bind up the devil and then send them on his way. Does that make sense? Jesus is trying to tell these guys something. Look, you might think I'm crazy. You might think I'm evil. I'm neither of those things. I'm God. I have power that you could not believe. And what I'm doing is not in a demonic way because that wouldn't work. I'm the son of God and I'm casting out these demons with the only power that will send them packing and that is God's power. That's the, the correction. The second thing he does to them is that he gives them good news actually. Verse 28, Jesus says this. It's, it's kind of almost lost in the middle of the passage but verse 28 just this. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven for all of their sins and every slander they utter. What incredible good news that is. There is not anything that we cannot be forgiven. They can be forgiven for every sin and every slander that they utter. That is good news. That's the gospel. Forgiveness is available, guys. It doesn't matter what sin you've had in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. It doesn't matter who you've hurt, who you've done whatever to. If you're repentant, Whew. Um, there's forgiveness available. That is the good news he gives them. Huge good news. Almost lost in the middle of the passage. But then he says something, the third thing, this is the, the stern warning, which always seems to contradict that. He says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. See, so he's just said, you can be forgiven for anything. And then suddenly he says, but you can't be forgiven for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think it's important that we unpack that a bit, otherwise we might be leaving here a bit confused this morning. You know, one of the key functions of the Holy Spirit, one of the key things of this person, we've learned recently, I haven't we? so much about the person of the Holy Spirit, is important in our lives. And, and Jesus sent him to us after he left the earth. One of the key things that the Holy Spirit does, it says this in John 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who makes us aware of the sin in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who says to us, actually, you are not right with God. There is sin in your life that requires forgiveness. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. And that conviction is hard because it involves us admitting that we've done wrong, that we haven't got it all right. But it comes with the promise of the good news that we've just heard. That every sin can be forgiven if we repent and we put our trust in Jesus. Now, the unforgivable sin, I believe, is this. It is essentially hardening one's heart to the extent that repentance cannot happen and therefore neither can forgiveness and therefore denying the impact of the Holy Spirit. Let me unpack that a little bit. If the Holy Spirit convicts us and tells us you're sinful and you need to repent to get right with God, if our response to that is, yeah, I repent, then we're forgiven. If our response is, no, sod it, I'm not going to repent. I don't think I need forgiveness. Then we can't be forgiven. If we're not prepared to accept the forgiveness and, and repent, then we put ourselves out of that state of forgiveness. Henry Alford, an author, said this, that the unforgivable sin is a state of willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. It's a state where we see the goodness of God, we see the power of the Holy Spirit, the mercy of God, and we say, no thank you. No thank you. And because we're not prepared to accept the forgiveness on offer, that means we cannot be forgiven. Do we understand? Is that clear? Anyone not sure? Let me put it another way. I think the message puts us, the message translation, message is a modern translation of scripture. It puts it like this. I don't know if you can see that picture. It's going to keep repeating, so don't worry. It says this. If you persist in your slanders against God's Holy Spirit, you are repudiating the very one who forgives. You are soaring off the branch on which you're sitting. You're severing by your own perversity or connection with the one who forgives. I think that's such a helpful picture. It is only God's forgiveness of our sin that can allow us any connection with God at all, any relationship with him. The branch that we are able to sit on in God's tree, as it were, is there because God forgives us and gives us that branch to sit on. If we attack that branch and cut it off, we are cutting ourselves off from God. You see? If we attack the very thing that has helped us to to know that we need forgiveness... And we attack God for that and say, no, that's evil. I'm not, I don't want any part of it. Then we're, we lose that forgiveness. I'm going to turn that off now because everyone's watching it again. Um, <laughs> do we see what we're saying here? I hope, I hope this is making sense. Every sin, every sin and slander can be forgiven. The only sin we cannot be forgiven for is the sin of saying, I don't need forgiveness. You got me? Jesus challenges these people. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't try and appease them. He says, you need to know this. You, you're saying this to me that you think I'm evil. I'm offering you the words of life. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you fellowship with your father. I'm offering you a relationship with God. And when you turn around and you harden your heart and say to me, no, that's, that's the devil, you cannot be forgiven. You cannot enter a relationship with God while you have your heart in that, in that position. It's a harsh truth, but it is truth nonetheless. And you can see why Jesus raises it here. Because these guys are witnessing the power of God in action. They're witnessing the devil fleeing. They're witnessing people being healed. They're witnessing demons fleeing. And they are responding not with worship, but with hard hearts and an accusation of evil. You know, this passage, I think, gives us a huge warning about the terror of the consequence of ongoing, unrepented sin. Jesus doesn't mince his words. He doesn't water it down. He brings hope, but he brings a challenge. He wants people to know that, most of all, that forgiveness is available for all sins. But he's also honest and real in explaining the consequences if repentance doesn't come. He doesn't bow, he doesn't bend to the attacks that he faces. Do you know what? I I fear that sometimes this is something that is lost to Christianity today. That we find ourselves almost apologising for the truth of Scripture, Almost trying to dress Christian beliefs up in a way that would, would cause the least offence. Just to avoid hurting people, just to avoid um, upsetting them and saying the wrong thing. I was speaking to someone the other day who was saying to me, oh yeah, I really appreciate the Bible, but it's got to evolve, hasn't it? It's got to move with the times. i was like, no, <laughs> that's the word of God. Unchanging, forever. When we start apologising for it, when we start trying to dress it up as something it isn't, we're losing the power of the gospel. The gospel is offensive. It is offensive. And we need to love the unbelieving people in our lives enough to tell them the truth, to tell them the consequence of their opposition to God. Not in a fire and brimstone way, not in a you're going to hell way, but in a loving way that as Jesus did. Do you know what? There is forgiveness for all of your sins. For all of your sins. There is rightness with God available. You can be a fully justified by him but if you don't if you don't respond to that you you can't receive that forgiveness it's so important that we let people know this the most important people in our lives if they're they're really really important to us we'll tell them third thing is that he points us to a new family an eternal family Jesus makes a shocking statement at the end of the passage when, when he finds out, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to take you away. They want you out of here. Go with them. He says, look, where are my mothers and brothers? He looks at everyone in the room and says, look, here you are. You are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. You know what, my, my family, when we're in the new family of Jesus, when we are accepted into his kingdom, when we become, when we put our faith in Jesus, we become part of a brand new family. Not a blood family, but a family connected to our Father in Heaven by obedience and love. And Jesus even says at the end of that passage, whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and sister. Jesus recognises that his blood family are brilliant. And they're, as long as he's on earth, they're always with him. They're his family. They're important. But to follow God is to understand that life is eternal. And that one day we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth and with a new whole community of believers. And we see a picture of that now right here in front of us in church. You see a family of brothers and sisters around you. You're part of that family as a believer in Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, that's more important actually. I haven't just got my my earthly mum and dad and my earthly brothers and sisters. I've got a new family. A family that loves me, a family that rejoices when I rejoice, that weeps when I weep, that cares for me, that loves me. His model is to honour his family, but to love God and to remember that we have a new eternal family in Christ, a family of believers around us. You know, the result of Jesus' approach, we don't get it in this passage, but we look elsewhere for it, it's best expressed, I think, by looking at a single verse of Scripture, If you uh, look at James 1, verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the the words he opens that that book with. James, the guy who wrote the book of James is James. Who is he? Jesus' brother. And his opening words in this passage. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think back to what I said at the start about that annoying brother. That annoying, perfect brother. Mr. Flipping Mr. Perfect. James is able to say later on, I'm his servant. He is my Lord. He is my Messiah. He comes a long way from thinking that his brother was out of his mind in this passage, from wanting him to stop what he's doing, to stop giving the family a bad name, to stop doing all this weird stuff he's doing. James comes full circle and says, My Lord, my brother is God. And it wasn't because Jesus bent to him. It wasn't because Jesus changed his, his ways. Jesus didn't stop doing what he was doing. He never said, okay, James, I'll turn it down a bit. I'll stop doing so many demon casting out. I'll stop healing so many people. I'll just quiet it. No, he carried on doing what he was doing. He let his family and his people around him know the impact of what they were saying. And James's response was to see the truth and to bow the knee. And I hope that inspires us. Actually, not one of our family who don't believe, not one of the important people in our lives who don't believe is beyond hope. Even the ones who think we're bonkers. Even the ones who look at us and think, what are you doing with your Sunday mornings, with your Wednesday nights? Who are these people you're hanging out with? Not one of them is beyond the hope of God. So to remind us, I think these are three key things as we deal with these these issues of Families who don't believe, important people who don't believe, how do we handle it? Number one, we don't fall out. We don't dishonor them. We love them first and foremost. We love them. But also we love them enough to tell them the truth. To tell them the truth. In fact, um, in the book of Romans, um, chapter 10, uh, it says this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Uh, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If we love our families enough, if we love our families enough and we truly want them to experience the love of Christ that we experience ourselves, we must love them enough to tell them, to tell them, to tell them the truth to tell them forgiveness is available, but there's a consequence if we, if we don't accept that forgiveness. And that is our challenge. But it's more loving to tell them this than it is to, to shy away and to appease and to be nicey-nicey and say, look, I'm, I know I do all this church stuff, but that's me over here. Don't worry about me. I believe that that's a challenge that Jesus lays down for us. And who knows, I, I hope and I pray that as we do this, as we faithfully step out, that as we look at our, around our family of believers in here, our brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, I believe gradually we will see these seats filled up with our, our earthy family and our earthy friends and unbelievers who we're so desperate to see. Guys, if we tell them the truth and let the power of the gospel truth do its work, amazing things will happen.